Uh, turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find one um, at the end of the rows. There's a blue Bible there, and you can follow along with me on page 984. We are continuing our, um, our series called Vivid in the book of Colossians. And so uh, let me invite you to stand with me as we read Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. The Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray that um, in this brief time, as we turn our attention to your word, God, that as, as we look about uh, at, at this um, maybe unfamiliar passage or an unfamiliar topic, that you would open our minds, that you would fill our imaginations, that we might understand more fully and clearly who Jesus is, and because we understand who he is, that we might see everything more clearly in light of him. And we pray in his name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Several years ago, Ashley and I bought our first house. Now, it just occurred to me as I said this, that this series in Colossians, in addition to being an exploration of the book of Colossians, is apparently becoming also an exploration of our history of buying houses. Um, If you don't know what that means, you can go back and listen to the last couple weeks on the podcast on our website. Um, Several years ago, we bought our first house. And um, it was an old house. It was built in 1906. It was a great house. But when we bought it, it was owned by the bank. It had been recently foreclosed upon. And we learned from the neighbors that the previous owner had, um, had rented the house out to college students. And when the bank foreclosed on the house, the college students who got kicked out uh, just broke a window and moved back into the house and were squatting in the house. And... Um, and, uh, and so we got a really great deal on that house. <laughs> um, it was in, it was in um, you know, structurally, plumbing, all that stuff was, was in great shape. Cosmetically, it was an ugly duckling. Um, and so we got a really good deal on that house. And the day that we closed escrow on that house, um, I immediately went to work um, just renovating everything. I think the first thing I did, there was this hideous, like, um, like storm door, um, like what is it called? Like a on the front door. She doesn't even remember because I took it off. But she probably never even saw it. We like, I took this uh, like a screen door. It was so hideous um, that I took it off immediately. I uh, refinished the hardwood floors. I think we had painted every wall in that house by the time we moved out. Um, very quickly after we we bought the house and we're, we moved in and we're doing work on the house and neighbors would see me working in the yard and they would stop by and they would say, um, thank you, thank you so much for doing something about this house. Right on the corner and so it was kind of prominent and, um, and uh, they would ask, are you, um, 
like, are you going to sell it? I'm like, no, it's a family. We live here. They're like, oh, thank you so much. People told us horror stories about the, the college students that lived there before would like, like um, throw bottle caps at women as they were like running by and stuff. It was like, sounded, they, so people would like, for the first six months we were there, people would regularly say, thank you for buying this house. We love it. Um, and so that house, as we, as we moved in, as we bought it, as we fixed it up, it, it slowly began to, um, you know, what once was an eyesore began to transition into this, this great, wonderful old house. Um, as we begin to kind of peel back the, the ugliness and the crud, um, it really began to become the house that it had always been, um, you had the potential to be. But here's the thing. When we bought that house, um, as ugly as it was, legally, it was ours. But it took time for it to really become a reflection of who we are. Legally, it was ours but actually it didn't feel like it was ours. It took time to renovate and to grow into um, as that house began to take the shape that it had always been intended to have. It took imagination to buy that house. I think it probably takes a bit of imagination to buy any house. Um, but on the day that we closed escrow, we owned this ugly duckling of a house, legally. But I didn't buy it because it was an ugly duckling. I bought it because of what I knew it had the potential to become, right? We looked at that house, not as it was, but with the imagination uh, to see what it could become. And that's a little bit of a picture of the Christian life. When you become a Christian, God has bought you. Legally, you are his. Uh, God has purchased you with the blood of Jesus on the cross. And so definitively, legally, objectively, at that moment, you are his. You belong to him. And yet God's intention is to renovate you, uh, to strip away the layers of just, you know, grossness that have been added on top of us over time. Um, at the moment that you become a Christian, everything that is true of Jesus is legally true of you. Um, everything that he, that he possesses, his status, his resources, um, his, his, uh, the way that God the Father looks at him, that is yours legally. But what changes in you at that moment? Well, what changes in you is, is in some ways nothing. I mean, your status completely changes. We talked about this last week. Um, your status changes, but it's not like your desires have changed. Your character hasn't changed. Uh, your preferences haven't changed. Your proclivity to, to uh, run away from God has not changed. What has changed about you is your status, the way God treats you, the way that God looks at you. But the who you actually are and the way you actually behave hasn't changed yet. He's going to work, work on us over time. He's going to renovate us. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about what that process actually looks like and feels like. But this morning... In this brief um, family service uh, message, I just want to talk about um, what I think is the first part of that renovation process. And it's, 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 I want to refer to it as Christian imagination. That in between the time when God buys us or justifies us, we are objectively his, and he actually begins to renovate us. There is a, this, the first part of that that happens is he begins to change our imagination. 
And in this passage, Paul is encouraging us to live our lives with Christian imagination. What he's saying to us is, before your behavior is actually going to change, you're going to have to begin to imagine what it would look like for your behavior to change. And the way that you do that is by beginning to live with Christian imagination, where we begin to live now in light of what God says is true of us in Christ and will ultimately one day be finally true of us when he has completed his work of renovation in our lives. We live now in light of what God says is true about us, and that takes imagination. Twice in this passage, um, Paul tells us to use our imaginations. In verse 1, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, and another way to say if is since, since you have been raised with Christ, that's what he's been saying in in Colossians 1 and 2, since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Right? Look to these things that are above. Well, you can't actually see them, right? You have to use your imagination. And then in verse 2, he says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Use your, exercise your imagination. Imagination is critical to our humanity. Um, sometimes I think when we use the word imagination, it's easy to think that we're talking about something that's not actually real, right? We, the, the, you know, use your imagination means pretend that something false is actually true. But there's another way to use the word imagination. Um, and I think that the way that, uh, the way that I'm, I'm getting at it here is, is um, imagination is living as if something were true even though we can't currently see it. So, um, just as a couple of examples, I could, I could start to tell you about what we are going to have for dinner at my house tonight. Um, and not just theoretically, we're having some neighbors over, and I'm going to grill salmon, and I've got this glaze that we make, and this salad with a citrus dressing. Now, what you're all doing right now, some of you are going, that sounds weird. Um, some of you are smiling at me, and the ones that are smiling are imagining, or the, or the rest of you don't like salmon, maybe. Or... Um, I could ask you to um, think about the house that you grew up in. And what you are now doing is you have a picture in your mind of a place that you're not currently looking at. Or think about the first school that you went to. Um, unless that's actually this school, you're imagining something. Or, or um, what does your grandmother look like? Right? You're imagining what somebody who is not in front of you looks like you're, you're using your imagination. We use our imaginations to envision what is real but not currently visible. And one way to think about the Christian life is to say that, the Christian, that living life as a Christian means that our imaginations have been captured and reshaped by God himself. One of the chief ways that God does that is in worship. This is why we gather, one of the reasons why we gather every week, because it's in worship that he begins to give us a, a picture of a better, a better world. Uh, he begins to reshape our imaginations. Or another way to say that is that um, learning to um, believe what doesn't at the moment feel true is what it means to be a Christian. It's essential to being a Christian. Learning to live in light of what we know to be true, what we believe to be true, even when it doesn't feel like it's true. Here's the beauty of this passage. Um, 
what Paul is saying in verse 3 is that he says, your, your life is hidden with God in Christ, in heaven. What, God, what Paul is saying is that the real you is in heaven. That there is a version of you that is here on earth, but the real you is in heaven because Christ is in heaven and you are in him. Again, that's what we talked about last week. And living as a Christian means learning to imagine that the real you that is currently in heaven in Christ is actually living your life here on earth. That's what it means to live as a Christian. Living as a Christian means every morning, one of the things I've been trying to train myself to do, I know I've said this before, but trying to train myself that every morning when I wake up, the first thing I'm going to do is not going to be to look at my phone and check my email and my Facebook to see how important I feel today. But that I start off every morning reminding myself that God smiles at me. That that's what God says is really true. That when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees not your imperfection, but he sees the perfection of Christ. And he loves you. Everything you have, everything Christ has, you have. Living as a Christian means having the imagination um, to live in such a way that when I'm bored... And when, when like the, I'm not getting enough like stimulation from the things immediately around me that, that I remember that I have life that is hidden with Christ in heaven. And so that, you know, that I have the, the fullness of that life means that I don't have to reach for that bag of chips and flip through Netflix until I find something that doesn't bore me. Or it means that when I'm tempted that I have to imagine that the pleasure that is offered or, or at least falsely promised to me in my sin is actually already given to me in Christ in its truest and purest form. Now, why can I imagine that? Because it's actually true. Because my life is hidden in heaven with Christ. That's true even if it doesn't feel like it at the moment. I hope you see, I hope you see what a big deal this is. Um, this is not like a little detail of the Christian life. Um, and this, this isn't going to become a reality in our lived experience if we treat Jesus like a vitamin where it's like, you know, it's great if you take your vitamins, but if you forget it for like six weeks, it won't really affect anything. I mean, I treat Jesus like that all the time. Um, this is not living, at, living with Christian imagination is not going to happen if it's something that we just approach in a casual way. Developing a Christian imagination is what happens when we set our hearts on God because we see him in his beauty and nothing else will really satisfy us. Now my suspicion, if I can kind of go out on a limb here, my suspicion is that most Christians are not actually experiencing the fullness of this reality. Um, that most Christians, while it is true that if we have put our faith in Christ, that as it relates to our kind of ultimate salvation, that we are, you know, safe in Christ. But in, a, in our day-to-day experience, in the day-to-day realities of our lives, that we're actually just kind of like white-knuckling it. And that we're just kind of holding on, trying to, you know, maybe not let go, um, trying to distract ourselves from the realities of life along the way. My suspicion is that most of us have only kind of dipped a pinky toe into the river of God's grace instead of actually diving in head first. 
So let me leave you with this challenge. The story, what's the story of the Lord of the Rings? I remember, I think the last time I talked about Lord of the Rings, I said like, everybody loves the Lord of the Rings and somebody was like, I haven't even watched that movie and I don't want to. So let me remind you of the story of the Lord of the Rings briefly. The story of the Lord of the Rings starts in the Shire, right? And the Shire is this beautiful, like uh, it's idyllic and nothing bad ever happens in the Shire. And um, the hobbits live in the Shire and they eat breakfast like two or three times a day. And the thing that they never want to have happen is that they would go on an adventure because they would have to leave the Shire because nothing ever really interesting happens in the Shire. And um, one day Gandalf comes to the Shire and he recruits these hobbits and he takes them, he convinces them to leave the Shire to go on an adventure with him. And they leave the Shire and they leave their home and they, they leave this place that's maybe a little bit boring but nothing ever scary or dangerous or harmful will ever hurt them in the Shire. And they go off and they fight the forces of evil. right? And they, they go on this improbable journey where you know, it seems like they're not going to make it and they're not going to survive and they're not going to accomplish what, what Gandalf, the mission that Gandalf has given them to accomplish. Or if they accomplish it, they'll only accomplish it at the cost of their own lives. And yet, against all odds, they narrowly escape you know, death and judgment and evil. And they succeed. They just barely make it out alive. And then they go back to the Shire. And they go back to this land that is, um, in some ways, idyllic and very comfortable. And they, the, oh, I forgot to say this, but the whole time they're doing it, the whole time they're on this mission is they're doing it for the sake of the Shire. There's a point where I think Bilbo, he, he has his sword and he like, is the Shire! When he's, you know, fighting. Like that, the Shire is what motivates them the whole time. And then they accomplish what they were set out to do. And then they go back and they find that the Shire doesn't actually satisfy them anymore. And the thing that they've been fighting for this whole time, this life of comfort and ease, doesn't actually fulfill the promises for which they were fighting. And why is that? Because they've gone out into the real world and they've fought against evil and death um, and they've learned to live a life not of comfort but of adventure. And the life of ease uh, doesn't satisfy anymore. And they have begun to rise above being comfortable and easy and bored. I think that's a picture of Christian imagination. I mean, I literally think that's what J.R.R. Tolkien was trying to do <laughs> in that story. But we live in a world that increasingly seems to be saying, um, don't just avoid danger, avoid even the very possibility of danger. And um, we live in a world that increasingly says, don't just seek comfort, but avoid anything that might possibly make you just a slightly, any little bit uncomfortable. And you know, the reality is I think it's making us flabby. And living as a Christian means to live a life of imagination where we can begin to rise above the crud of everyday life because we have experienced, we actually live now in the most real world. That's what heaven is. It's not this far away fairy tale land. It's actually the most real world. And because our life is hidden there in Christ with God, we have begun to experience the real world, this world of life, you know, comfortable and easy. 
doesn't satisfy us the way that we've been led to hope that it should. How do you do that? Well, next week we're going we're gonna to talk, we're going to dive into the details of what it actually looks like to live that kind of life. And I'm just going to set you up right now. I mean, I already have, but to say it's not easy, right? But it's worth it. But for now, let me, let me, let me give you two things, just two words, really. The first is remember. Um, throughout the Bible, one of the constant refrains of the Bible is remember. God says, remember who I am. Remember what I have done. Remember who you really are. And that's the call of Christians. That's a call to exercise our imagination, right? To envision something that we're not currently experiencing. To remember that God has been good, that God has been faithful. Every single time. But secondly, ask. If you're saying, God, I would love to know what it looks like to live with Christian imagination, then ask him. Just ask him. Say, God, I don't even know what this means, but it seems like in the Bible you're holding out the promise of a different way to live than what I'm currently experiencing, and God wants to answer the prayers of his children, so ask him. Ask him. C.S. Lewis somewhat famously said this. He said, we are half-hearted creatures. We are fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation on the coast. Did you catch it? (laughs) The thing that stands between us and a life of adventure, the first step is our imagination. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this beautiful picture, this reminder that our current experience, what we can see and smell and touch and taste is not all that there is, but that there is a more true world where you have seated us at your right hand because we are in Christ. And I pray that you would help us to exercise faith that you would give us the imagination to trust that what we don't see is actually more real than what we experience day in and day out. And that the reality of what you have done in Christ for us would actually begin to invade our life in this world. God, some of us believe that And some of us just want it to be true. And some of us are thinking that would be great, but it seems like such a far off hope. And so God, I pray that you would help us to remember how good you have been to us. And that that we would ask you. And that as we ask, that you would answer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.